Mr Deputy Speaker, I believe the Government has made the right choices to rebuild our public services. When faced with the upheaval of the global recession, we made the right choices to support the economy, businesses and families. Because of the steps we took, opposed by the party opposite, the recovery has begun, unemployment is falling and borrowing is better than expected. The choice before the country now is whether to support those whose policies would suffocate our recovery and put our future at future, or to support a government that has been right about the recession, right about the recovery, has been right about supporting people and businesses in this country and build a prosperous future. And I commend this budget to the House. Assume the recovery position. Darling delivers his pre-election budget and outlines how growth and investment can trigger Britain's resurgence. But has he been straight with the public about tough times ahead? I'm Tom Clark. And I'm Edith Chakraborty. And joining us today for this special budget podcast, we have The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott, columnist Martin Kettle, and The Observer's business editor, Ruth Sunderland. Hello to you all. And just before we get going in earnest, let's go quickly round the table and ask everyone for a marks out of ten on this budget. Larry first. Eight. Quite good. Reese. I'd go with a seven. Seven. Martin? Yeah, certainly seven, I think, uh, especially for artistic impression. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad set of marks there. But, Reese, normally with budgets, the first question we ask is, who are the winners, who are the losers? Mm-hmm. We're normally talking about Mondeos and smokers mm-hmm. and people of small businesses. Are there obvious winners and losers here? Well, I suppose the obvious set of losers are um, that, as the Chancellor said, about 60% of the tax increases are hitting the top 5% of earners. Mm-hmm. And there weren't a lot of announcements on that score, but that's because we knew that some of these tax rises were already coming, the restrictions on pensions relief, national insurance contribution increases, and the higher rate for higher earners. So, um, yeah, there are some definite losers there, people um, with income coming from Belize or somewhere, I guess, too. Um, might be categorised as losers. <laughs> Martin, there was nothing in that budget which seemed to me like it was an obvious doorstep winner. Well, uh, in in the in the traditional sense, that's certainly true. There, were, there, there wasn't a big, you know, there wasn't the kind of big tax cut that uh, sometimes you've had in pre-election budgets, for example. But I think in this election at this time in in the, in this political situation, what Labour is trying to do all the time is to say that they are competent to deal with an exceptional situation, and so I think giveaways would have given them completely wrong message uh, in in that uh, framework and the, the, you know the message the message is kind of like in wartime you know we've all got to pull together and keep calm you and know carry keep on. calm and carry on and uh, that's exactly the message darling gave very often with budgets there's a day one story which here seems to be steady as she goes and there's often a day two story as well think of the 10p tax rate for example any ideas what the day two story yeah might be? i think I, I think always with uh, big set speeches including the budget very often one's instant reaction turns out to not to hold up after uh, uh, thinking about it overnight. So I'm always, uh, you know, maybe we should do this tomorrow as well. But in in the short term, I think the big second phase story is quite likely to be the cuts that individual departments are going to be announcing during the course of the afternoon. I think we need to look pretty carefully at what that what that's all about. I think that's 
one half of what Labour's trying to do is to say that it's credible about uh, dealing with the deficit. Borrowing will fall to £131 billion in 2011 12, then to £110 billion. In 2013-14, it will be £89 billion. It will reach £74 billion in 2014 15. That is £8 billion lower than was forecast in December. Larry, let's pick up on that. The credibility of Darling's plans. What did you make of that? I thought it was reasonably credible. I thought the At least ta- talk about efficiency savings, though? No, yeah, but I think that we're going we're gonna to see some quite um, interesting detail about what's going to happen to departmental spending over the over the coming years and if you look at the if you look at the red book closely you'll find that whereas the government has been supporting the economy and supporting growth for the last two years quite substantially in in the coming years it's going to be actually detracting from growth so there are some quite big spending reductions uh, in the pipeline and I think that those are going to be fleshed out over the coming over the coming weeks I don't actually think that there are that many unexploded bombs to go off in this budget I mean normally the budgets which unravel are those that look really good on the day <coughs> then they the un- big headlines the big headline grabbing budgets are normally the ones which a week or a month or a year later look like the real turkeys and the ones that look boring and actually quite sensible are the ones which stand the test of time I think just handing money away that people would have realised straight away would have to be paid back pretty soon would have been a disastrous political strategy actually. Well replying to the budget is one of the trickiest tasks for a leader of the opposition but David Cameron came out fighting. Like every Labour government before them they've run out of money and they are leaving it to the next Conservative government to clean up the mess. Today this Chancellor had his last chance to do the right thing for the country. He totally failed. They're going, the taxes for hire are on their way out of the chamber. They're just going to carry on spending, carry on borrowing and carry on failing. And I have to say the biggest risk to our recovery is five more years of this Prime Minister. Martin, how do you think he did? I think, as, as Aditya says, it's incredibly difficult speech to give uh, replying to a budget because basically you have to write it before you hear what the budget is and so, of course, the Chancellor knows that and so he's going to try and wrong-foot you as often as possible. It seemed to me that uh, you know, Cameron, who is a very, very good Commons performer uh, and uh, on the eve of an election, you know, his, his side is right behind him, urging him on, uh, he actually sounded to me, the bits I've heard, uh, were very predictable and not quite on the on the money as far as uh, what uh, Darling had actually announced. I think uh, the Tories are going to have to think about this their re- longer-term response to this quite carefully because in addition to kind of covering their backs on uh, cuts, I think Labour have, uh, you know, identified a whole area of you know investment in growth uh, measures which i think the tories whilst they won't disapprove of them uh, haven't really got anything to say about ruth one of the ways in which uh, labor planned to return us to growth is by bolstering small and medium-sized mm. businesses there was plenty in this budget for them wasn't there well there was i mean i have to say that um it was a bit you know this realization that small business can be a serious engine of growth is um, all a bit belated but you know better late than never it's very welcome so the centerpiece was this 2.5 billion package for small businesses I think there's quite a lot there that they will welcome I also think that um, you know what he said about the banks and making sure that the banks repay uh, their debt to society as it were will and the whole I thought where he did well really was 
talking about how he would restructure and rebalance the economy so we no longer have this over-dependency on the finance sector was was quite good. I thought he did a good job at putting clear blue water between Labour and the Tories around that um, around that piece. So that's a question about vision in a way in the, in the longer term. But what about muddling through the here and now and particularly, Larry, unemployment? Well, I think that he's got a good story to tell on unemployment, which is that you know, if you think about the economy last year, it contracted by 5%. Uh, the economy contracted by about 1% in the 1992, 1991-92 recession. And yet unemployment then, on the claimant count measure, went to 3 million. And this time it's 1.6 million. So there is, there is, there is a, a very strong case for saying that active government measures have actually helped limit the uh, increase in unemployment. And some of those have been taken by individual companies themselves, by pay freezes and pay cuts, but actually government has helped get people into, into jobs. It's had job guarantees for young people, and I think those have actually paid off. And it's part of the government's narrative here, which is that the state does have a role in running a modern economy, and you can't just leave things to the markets. And so he hasn't actually done that much extra in this budget, although he has extended the job guarantee for another year, and I think that's, that's, that's a sensible move. But do you think you can cash in on it politically, the sense that although unemployment's got worse than it was a couple of years ago, it's not got as much worse as it would have done in, in a kind of laissez-faire world? Well, I think that the, the, the problem for Labour, the downside of having unemployment not going up as much is that people have often taken quite big real wage cuts in order to stay in a job. So that's actually affected people's real disposable income and it will do during the election. And you know, Most elections are actually won or lost on those bread and butter issues. Do people feel better off than they did one, two, five years ago? And for quite a lot of people, even if they're in a job, they're still not getting very big increases in, 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 in wages. But I, I mean, I think that there, there will be a recognition. I think there will be some political payoff from the electorate because if you look across the piece at jobs, business failures, house repossessions, all three of those have risen much, much less rapidly than they did in the early 1990s. And I think that, going back to Martin's point, the Conservatives are actually really struggling to articulate an answer to that, which is Labour's strongest card, that we believe in active government, what do you believe in? And that, that's the point that Labour will hammer home between now and polling day. So that's the bread and butter, but there are also in this budget a couple of moments of pure theatre, something we don't normally associate with Alistair Darling, and none more so than this one. I can also... I can also now tell the House that we are ready to sign tax information exchange agreements with three additional countries. <laughs> which, which, which are, Mr Deputy Speaker, Dominica, Grenada and Belize. Yeah! Martin, that went down very well on the Labour benches. Was it anything more than a stump? Will anyone notice outside? Well, uh, going down well on the Labour bench is important because it's important from the Labour point of view that the MPs feel uh, that, that the party's got its act together, that everybody's uh, singing from the same proverbial hymn sheet. Will it make much difference? It could have some e- effect, I think. You perhaps know better th- than I about this, Tom, but I mean, if once you kind of get into the details of uh, the Belize tax regime, I mean, you might, there might be more information to come out about Ashcroft's wealth and his taxes and what he might have paid here but hasn't, uh, and that will continue to be a theme through the election. Is, you know, is it an election-winning stunt? No, I don't think it is, one way or the other. I think, you know, 
Lord Ashcroft's the details of, on Ashcroft are, are not the point. The point is that Ashcroft em, embodies somebody uh, you know who, who who doesn't pay his taxes the way normal people do, and uh, you know if that can be hung round the Tories' neck, then you know that's obviously bound to help Labour. Ruth, we've talked about tax. I was going to say tax exiles, but we'll call them non-doms. Mm-hmm. We've talked about uh, the unemployed. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about markets yet, and we always thought that the markets would set kind of the, the parameters for this budget. Well, the market reaction the last time that I looked was relatively muted. I think, you know, as Martin said, I mean, just as we take time um, to get to let budgets sink in and take in all the implications, so too do the traders operating on the market. So, you know, I think we wait and see. Clearly, this is very important, you know, what happens to the pound, what happens to share prices, what happens on the gilt markets. There's a lot at stake in this budget for the credibility of UK PLC, really, and Darling will have been very conscious of that when he when he made his speech. I gather that the Times reporting this budget in terms of Darling soaking the rich. I mean, mm. you mentioned before that there's some tax rises in the pipeline, but was there anything new there to make the pips squeak? Nothing major that I picked up. There I was mean, the stamp duty. Oh, there was the millionaire stamp duty, of course, which, which actually I have to say I was slightly regretful that, that Darling was still tinkering with the housing market, which has been sort of one of the major imbalances um, in the economy, whether, whether actually diverting money from higher stamp duty on multi-million pound homes towards first-time buyers will be of any practical help is also a bit open to debate I think because I would have thought the major problem for first-time buyers isn't necessarily stamp duty because they've got to get you know 25 or 30 percent deposit first. That's what Labour's um, picking up on the doorsteps actually. The the, the explanation for me was that first-time buyers just cannot get the cash together for a deposit and, and actually the stamp duty uh, move is a way of actually giving them some extra cash so they can put more down for their deposit but apparently it's something which they've picked up from right. from, from Labour MPs there's an awful lot of potential first time buyers who say that they want to buy a house but can't because they can't mm. get the finance together and the reason <coughs> the reason the reason they're giving for the for, for the millionaire stamp duty is that you have to show the city that it's financed. It's not just a giveaway. Therefore, you have to you have to show that by raising the stamp duty threshold to two hundred fifty thousand, that you're actually clawing the money back from somebody else. Martin, this is Darling's final budget for the election, and it may be his last ever, depending on who gets in and whether he's replaced by Ed Balls or George Osborne or some other Vince Cable, perhaps. How how do you think his sort of three years in in number eleven? How, how do you think he's done? Well, he's had the most difficult uh, period to be Chancellor that uh, one could possibly imagine. Um, So, you know, he's had three years to learn very fast on the job uh, and uh, in in exceptionally hard times. Uh, I think that he's done increasingly well and I think he's become increasingly uh, a trusted custodian of the national finances in these really difficult uh, times. And as we were saying earlier, I mean, Labour's pitch in the election is going to be we are the party that has seen the country through exceptionally difficult times. The Tories are going to be saying you got us into this mess and it's your responsibility. But actually, I think, you know, Alistair Darling in many ways, in a very odd way, has kind of come through the pack 
to be one of Labour's biggest assets. One would never have said that a couple of years ago. He was so much um, in the shadow of Gordon Brown's Absolutely. ten years at the tre- in the Treasury. But now I think he's a a, a really big player. Yeah. If he can hold on to his seat in Edinburgh, and he's in a marginal there, um, but things are going quite well for Labour in Scotland. If he can hold on to his seat, I would have thought his case for hanging on to the to his job if Labour was re-elected, and these are huge big ifs, of course, <laughs> is, is, is a pretty strong one. Um, I, I, if I was him, I would uh, feel quite, quite, quite in quite a strong position at the moment. I think I, I, I absolutely agree. I thought this was the first budget that was really authentically a darling speech from start to finish. Like the first one was completely overshadowed by the fact that Gordon Brown had been Chancellor for so long and Darling was really feeling his way into the job. And, and bullied him. And bullied him. Yeah. And the second one last year was obviously right at the depth of the crisis where it was just absolutely just, you know, firefighting was, was the order of the day then because the economy was virtually collapsing around his ears. This one, he had a little bit more space and time and money to play with. And it was all, he's, also, he's also taken command of his brief and sorted out his relations with the bloke next door and told him who's boss. Um, and I, I, he did feel this was what Darling wanted to say himself. And it, it felt to me a, a quite comfortable performance. I thought he was quite relaxed and comfortable giving that speech in a way that sometimes he hasn't been. And Martin's right. He, he has actually come through as, as a real electoral asset, which you probably wouldn't have thought when he was bumbling around trying to save Northern Rock in September uh, 2007. Yeah, I mean, at a time when... Trust is a pretty rare commodity for politicians. He's one of the ones who can lay claim yeah, to and that, and that, that. And, you know, in, in the current circumstances, that's a, and that, quite yeah. a big asset. And that's why there's no, there was no big giveaway, because it wouldn't have been true to himself. And I think mm. the voters would have seen through it that he, he has actually generated some, some degree of credibility. And yeah. to have thrown money at the electorate at this stage would have been... Um, would have been well, we all thought case. he was Brown's cat's paw, didn't we, yeah. first? And, I mean, his, I thought this budget, the delivery and the content and the form of it were, in many ways, better than a lot of the ones Brown produced. You know, he was coherent, he was cogent, he was competent. Um, I think, you know, he's come through very well and um, very clear blue water between Labour and Tories now. Yeah, although I think it was... Clear blue red, uh, clear red, red water on yeah, this occasion. Just, just assess him as a Labour Chancellor, because one of the criticisms you can make of Darling was actually he was a pretty good small C Conservative Chancellor. Well, there's some th- there's some truth in that, but circumstances have compelled him in a leftward direction, haven't they? They've compelled him, uh, as they've compelled the government, to, to say, you know, do we just sit back and watch what happens, or do we try and uh, shape what happens? And the government has been forced ever since Northern Rock to do that. Darling's been at the forefront of that. So, I mean, he, you know, I think he is objectively, as uh, sometimes we we say in these matters, he is objectively playing quite a left-wing role on these things. Larry, how's Alistair Darling contributed to the forward march of Labour? I think he's put him back in the game. I think he's actually made it it possible for Labour to go into this election thinking that they could do rather better than they would have thought 12 or 18 months ago. And he he has, in his own quite slow, cautious way, started... I, I emphasise started the really necessary rebalancing of the economy. I mean, quite a lot of these measures are small and they've got a lot of long way to go. And there's, I mean, some disappointment for me that he's not prepared to be a bit more radical, in fact, a lot more radical in what he's doing for the financial sector. Mm-hmm. But actually, the, the direction of travel is the right one, that we, we actually do need to um, regenerate our manufacturing base. We do need to change the way we, 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 have, we shape our growth in this country. And Darling has started that process, but it would be... It's, 
it was bonkers to imagine that he would do it in a in a whiz bang radical way because that's not his style. I mean, th- there's a whole tradition of Labour chancellors who behave, as you say, as small C Conservative chancellors. Roy Jenkins did very much the same in equally unpropitious circumstances after 1967. It didn't do Labour very much good, incidentally, because they lost. But I mean, he did he did what he thought was right for the economy at the time. I mean, Labour cha- Labour chancellors, in fact, tend to be rather more responsible going into elections than Tory chancellors. It's normally the Conservative chancellors. Norman Lamont is one, and you know, Nigel Lawson is another. All back into the 1950s to Rab Butler, they always tended to find money for some pre-election tax giveaways. Uh, you know, three months before election, only to claw the money back in the post in the post budget, uh, uh, the post-election budget. So la- Labour chances have a, have, a re- have a sort of record of being relatively cautious and prudent. And Darling, I think, is in that in the, is in that tradition. Well, that's all from us. Thanks to all of our guests. This has been a joint edition of our Business and Politics Weekly podcast. Both are back next week at their usual times. And following our Politics Weekly trip to Manchester, we're going to Birmingham in a couple of weeks where you can join us for the recording of that show. John Harris, Nick Cohen and Jackie Ashley will be on the panel. Tickets are available from our website or by emailing politics.weekly at guardian.co.uk. The producer was Phil Maynard. Thanks for listening. <laughs>